Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Father, I, I pray that as we come now to look at this part of your word, that you would empower your servant and help me to trust you and to look to you for strength as I declare your word. Whatever you want to do with me, Lord, I'm okay with. I'm your servant. I trust you. But I pray, Lord, this morning that your word would come through and be understood by these, your people, that they would love your word, that they would respond to your word, that they would cherish your word, and that they would be transformed into your image as they see and delight in the glory in your word. So, Lord, I'm praying for something supernatural in these moments. And you've done this for us so many times, and I'm asking for you to do it again. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1965, Donald Curry killed the oldest known tree on earth. There's a few different versions of the story. But the one found in Smithsonian Magazine tells that Curry, a tree scientist, was trying to take core samples out of a bristlecone pine that he knew was an old tree in what is now Great Basin National Park in Nevada. He knew it was an old tree, wanted to know how old it was, so he had a coring device that takes a sample out so you can count up the rings. And as he was going to take the sample, uh, the core sample out of the tree, the coring device got stuck and he couldn't get it out. So a nearby uh, forestry worker, a park ranger rather, thought he'd lend a helping hand and probably using a chainsaw, they cut the tree down so he could get his coring device out. And only afterwards did he count up the rings and realize that they had just killed the oldest known tree on planet Earth. It was almost 5,000 years old. Almost 5,000 rings in this tree. I mean, talk about an oopsie, right? Did I do that? I wonder if that's what he said. Once you cut a tree down, you can't exactly glue it back together, can you? That's why forestry companies, after clear-cutting spots in the forest, send in college students to plant little trees for them to reforest, because when you chop down a forest, it's done. Isaiah chapter 1 to 12 has had a number of forestry or tree pictures in it. It's been a metaphor that's been used multiple times throughout Throughout these chapters, people have been described as trees, and God's judgment has been compared to cutting those trees down or even a forest fire that consumes those trees. Chapter 1 of Isaiah ended with these words. It said, For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his words a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So that was the picture there at the end of chapter 1, that that. Isaiah, or that the people were like a tree that was going to die and then be burned up by a forest fire. In chapter 2, he described, God described his judgment against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. 
Chapter 6 ended again with a picture of the forest fire. It says, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The people of Israel were like a forest, the people of Judah, rather, Israel and Judah, and that forest was going to be destroyed. And at least in Israel's case, the northern kingdom of Israel, the axe that God was going to use to chop down that forest was the axe of Assyria. That's where that language from last week in chapter 10, verse 15 comes in. Shall the axe boast over him who uses it? Assyria was the axe, and God was using them to chop down this forest of his people. But the picture continued because Assyria was also a forest and God is going to chop them down for their wickedness like we saw at the end of chapter 10 last week using very similar language. And so there's been a lot of these pictures of devastation, people and kingdoms being brought down by God's wrath because of their rebellion. But throughout these chapters, we've also seen a lot of notes about hope. Chapter 4 verse 2 promised that one day, the branch, so notice there, okay, we're talking about trees, trees being cut down, stumps. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. There's going to be a branch. It's not going to die, and it's going to be beautiful. Chapter 6, verse 13 told us that a stump would remain, but then a note of hope. It said that the holy seed or the holy offspring is that stump. So again, there's notes of, of hope there and of a future. And mixed in throughout these chapters have been repeated promises that don't have to do with the forest, but very clear promises that a child will be born, a son will be given, who would rescue and redeem God's people and bring an end to the exile of their sin. And today's passage, this is our last stop in this series on Isaiah 1 to 12, which is the first section, first couple sections of Isaiah. It gives us a promise of a Messiah, and it connects the promise of the Messiah with those pictures of the branch and the stump. And it gives us a beautiful picture of the way that God's grace is going to triumph in the future of his people. Chapter 11, verse 1, open. We just read these words together, these amazing words of hope. There shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So see, how, see the pictures. We've heard about a branch. We've heard about a stump. God's people have been reduced to a stump. But there's going to be, there's going to be a shoot that's going to grow. And it's going to bear fruit. Now, what's that mean? That means it's going to grow into a tree because little shoots can't bear fruit. It's got to grow up. So from this stump, something's going to grow, going to grow into a tree, and it's going to bear fruit. The house of David was going to be cut down, reduced to a stump, just like that bristlecone pine tree in 1965. It's interesting, historically, from the time of Ahaz, King Ahaz, who we've read about here, from the time of Ahaz on, The kings of Jerusalem were always under the threat of a foreign king, under the thumb in one form or another of a foreign king. And within a hundred years, the Babylonians were going to come and cut down the house of David, and no one would sit on the throne for centuries. Actually, humanly speaking, it's never happened since, if we think of a human physical throne in Jerusalem. But from that stump, a shoot would grow. And he's going to bear fruit, unlike the fruitless people in chapter 5, this shoot is going to bear fruit, and that fruit is the righteousness that God is looking for, right? That's, the, again, a, uh, a familiar picture that we've seen in these chapters, that the fruit that God's looking for is the fruit of righteousness. Now, it's interesting to notice that the stump that's mentioned here is the stump of Jesse. We might have expected to hear about the stump of David, 
the house of David reduced to a stump. But instead, it's the stump of Jesse, which suggests that this branch that grows is not just David's son. Yes, it will be David's son, but not just David's son, but a new David altogether, a true and better David, because he's coming from the same place David came from, the stump of Jesse. That's actually a theme we see a few other places in the prophets, and the references are in the notes, that the Messiah will not just be David's son, but will be a new David altogether. And for the rest of chapter 11, we find out what this branch, this coming king, is going to be like. And we're told that in three ways for the, in the rest of chapter 11. So if you're taking notes, these are kind of the headings. First, in verses 2 to 5, we're told what kind of king he's going to be. What kind of king he's going to be. Then verses 6 to 16 are going to tell us what he's going to do when he reigns. What it's going to be like, rather, we should say, what it will be like when he reigns. And there's two parts there, part one and part two. So again, what kind of king he's going to be, what it's going to be like when he reigns, part one, what it's going to be like when he reigns, part two. Let's start in verse two and consider what kind of king he will be. The first and most important thing here we should see is that just like the first David, this future king is going to be anointed by the Spirit. First Samuel 16. It's actually the very first time we hear about David, we hear David's name. It's very interesting. In First Samuel 16, David's name is not mentioned. He's just the little brother. But we finally hear his name after Samuel has anointed him with oil. It says, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. From that day forward, the Holy Spirit enabled and empowered David to rule. And so it will be for this future ruler. Verse 2 tells us in chapter 11 of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of the Lord isn't just going to touch him once or twice, but the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And what does that mean? Well, the rest of chapter 2 goes on to tell us what sort of attributes this spirit will convey upon this coming king. And we see three attributes or three statements of attributes about what the Spirit is going to do and convey upon this coming king. First, we read that he will be a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Now, those words in the original language are words that have judicial and governmental implications to them. So they're talking about the way that this king is going to rule wisely and he's going to make sound judgments and wise decisions. Second, verse 2 goes on to tell us that the spirit resting on this king will be a spirit of counsel and might. These are words in the original language that speak about military strategy. A wise strategist and a a king, remember the kings were the commander-in-chiefs of the army, and the king who was going to make wise plans and then have the power to carry them out. So a wise and a capable military leader. And third, finally, the spirit will be the spirit of knowledge and, of the, and the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs regularly connects knowledge and fear of the Lord together, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. This is, this is what we see. We'll be seeing that again starting next week when we get back into the book of Proverbs. And this is a king who's going to embody both a proper 
knowledge coming from a proper fear of the Lord. And we know that the knowledge here doesn't mean just knowing facts, being a human Wikipedia, but rather it, it means truly perceiving things, understanding things for what they are. And that true understanding only comes from a fear of the Lord. And we know that the fear of the Lord is not a foolish fear that wants to run away from God. Rather, it's a trembling, joyful fear that trembles as it draws near. And that's what verse 3 tells us. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's going to be his delight. He's going to love fearing God. And those who know God, fear God, and know what it means to delight in fearing him. Verse 3 goes on to tell us about the righteousness of his reign. Here's the kind of person he's going to be as he reigns. Verses 3 to 4. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Favoritism is a huge problem and it always has been. Just think, if you saw someone coming towards you, really well-dressed, nice suit, whatever, and they said, could I borrow 10 bucks? Versus if you saw someone with ripped clothes and looking all dirty, and they said, could I borrow 10 bucks? We often decide things based on what our eyes see, don't we? And, and, and this gets, in politics and, and in the rules of kings, this gets to be a very big problem But this coming king isn't going to be a king who treats people differently based on how they look. He's not going to favor the rich or the beautiful. He's not going to believe everything that people tell him. Instead, he's going to be a king who rules according to justice, period. He's going to take care of the weak and the defenseless, just like Psalm 72 celebrated. And his words will be powerful. This is what verse 4 goes on to say, it says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. What that means is that his very words will carry divine power to accomplish what he says. When he says something, it's going to happen. And with his words, he's going to clean up the wicked on the earth. And finally, verse 5 tells us that that righteousness isn't just going to be a part of this king's job. Okay? It's not, we've all seen this with politicians and political leaders where, you know, they're one thing when they're on TV and, and in front of people, but their private lives are just shambles. They themselves are not people of character. They just act that way to get your vote. This king isn't going to be like that because verse 5 tells us that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In the Bible, when it talks about clothing like this, it, it's speaking about about the, the core of who someone is. So think of uh, when Psalm 104 says that God is clothed with splendor and majesty. That's who God is. Wherever he goes, splendor and majesty go with him because they're wrapped tightly around him as if they're clothing. So it will be for this king. Wherever he goes, righteousness and faithfulness will be there because that's who he is. Don't you long for a leader like this? Don't you... I mean, if I just read you uh, like a, an election platform for someone, wouldn't you vote for that person? Doesn't that sound amazing? A man full of the spirit, wise and powerful, who fears the Lord, who always makes the right decision, who is 
powerful, is able to do what he decides to do, which is always right. He's not swayed by appearances or by what sounds good. He stands up for the weak. He'll deal with the wicked instead of pandering to the wicked and who is righteous and faithful to the core. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This is the true and better David whom God has promised to send a reign over his people. This is what verses two to five have told us what this branch will be like. So next we're going to see part one of what's going to happen when he reigns. Having heard what he's like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when he reigns? What do you think we're going to find here? And taxes shall be lowered. Healthcare shall be improved. Home prices shall be affordable for all. How about a new creation? Look at verse 6. Here's what's going to happen when this king reigns. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. There's some sheep farmers among us who find that an unbelievably wonderful thought. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. Predator and prey in perfect fellowship with each other. Just notice a few things about this verse. Notice that it doesn't just say cows. It says calves. Calves are the most vulnerable. If you look at how pack animals work, you ever seen those videos where it shows a pack of wolves going after a, a, a herd of animals? They're looking for the small ones. And if you can find one that's both small and fat, even better. And that's why the statement here about the fattened calf, the most vulnerable and the most desirable. And yet, they're just chilling out together totally at peace with each other. And not only is the little child safe, but the little child's actually leading them. Isn't that what God intended when he said to Adam, have dominion? That humans would be leading, having dominion over the animals? And this child is not just safe, but is in a position of leadership as it leads these ferocious animals. And verse 7 tells us how this is happening. This is happening because something at the core of who these animals are has changed. Rather than desiring meat and blood, they have changed in their nature. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion eats straw like an ox. So they're not going to be carnivores anymore. They're going to be eating grass. Do you realize what this is talking about? This is talking about a return to Eden. This is talking about a restored creation brought back to the Garden of Eden. Back in Genesis 1 verse 30, this is what God said. He said to all the animals everywhere, I give you, I've given every green plant for food. That was God's initial design. Animals eating other animals and especially animals going after humans wasn't a part of the initial design. That was something that happened after the fall into sin. And in the new creation that this branch will bring about, it it will go back to the way it was supposed to go. Now, there's a number of big questions that I know this can make us ask. Like, what about animals that seem purpose-built to eat other animals? Like a cheetah. Cheetahs are just incredible. Look them up sometime. Like, everything about them seems 
designed to catch and kill other animals. Or birds of prey. Like a, like a peregrine falcon. Just, just amazing. So, did God build these animals to be able to do that, knowing that the fall would happen, which he did? Did God give them those abilities after the fall, which he could have? Are some of these things a result of them adapting over a few thousand years, which they can do? I'd love to be told more information. We're not. But here's what we do know for sure. We do know that when the Messiah reigns, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden again. And carnivores aren't going to be munching on other animals or little kids. The picture gets even clearer in verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Remember Genesis 3.15? When God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And in the new creation, that enmity is going to be done with. Snakes, adders, vipers will be nothing to be afraid of. Here's what's behind all this transformation. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's like as, as, as wet as water. That's, that's how so full the earth is going to be of the knowledge of the Lord. How much do the waters cover the sea? Completely. That's how much this world is going to know it's God. So don't miss. Remember back up in verse 2, we heard how this branch, this coming Messiah, has the knowledge of the Lord. And what we see here is that he's going to spread that knowledge over the earth, so that the entire earth, not just people, but animals, are going to know their creator. Think of the way a dog knows its master. That's going to be true of every animal knowing its creator and acting the way that God had initially built and designed them and wants them to act. So in other words, this Messiah is not just going to be a new David. He's also going to be a new Adam, standing at the beginning of a new creation, a new Garden of Eden. And this is God's ultimate plan. We've talked about this a lot before. When we die, we go to heaven, and that's wonderful. But God's ultimate plan is to bring heaven to earth and to make this earth the place that he had wanted it to be from the very beginning. And that is what this king is going to bring about. Verse 10 sums up this whole section by saying, In that day, the root of Jesse, whoa, whoa, whoa. not only is he the, sh- the shoot from Jesse, he's also the root of Jesse. Do you hear an echo of Jesus saying, How can the, the Messiah be both David's Lord and David's son? <laughs> think on that. But the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. The Messiah is going to rest because his work is going to be done and it's going to be wonderful. I can't wait. Can can, Can you? I can't. And that's just part one. We'll move through part two a little bit quicker in verses 11 to 16. Part one here is all about the new creation. Part two is all about the return from exile. Verses 11 to 12. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains from his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble 
the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Israel and Judah know exile's coming for Israel. It started already in Isaiah's lifetime for Judah. It was coming in another hundred years or just less. And yet here Isaiah promises that when the Messiah comes, God's children, however far out they are, are going to be gathered back into the land. And in verses 15 to 16, he describes this return from exile in a way that sounds very, very much like the return or the coming out of Egypt from Exodus. That's a theme Isaiah develops later on. This great return from exile is a second exodus as God's people leave slavery and come back to be with God in their land. So this is the hope that was held out for the people of the day. They lived in dark days. Their foolish kings were selling them into slavery to foreign powers. Exile lay ahead. Though Judah was a mighty forest, they were going to be reduced to a stump. The kingdom would be dead and lifeless, and whatever small remnant remained, they were going to be spread all among the nations. But from that stump, a branch would grow. And that branch was going to make all things new. Didn't happen right away, though, did it? The exile to Babylon, still 100 years in the future. And after that, centuries of exile. Even after Israel came back to their own land under Cyrus the Great, the Persian, they never really got out of exile. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. But God wasn't there. God's presence didn't fill the temple the way it had before. They were still under the power of foreign, uh, foreign empires, and, and God's people were fundamentally still in exile, even as they waited within their own land. And then it happened. In the most unlikely way, a branch, the branch, started to grow. He was born in David's town, just like a son of David, just like a second David should be. And reenacting the story of Israel, he went down to Egypt. And out of Egypt, God called his son. And then that branch began to grow up in Nazareth of all places. But maybe not of all places. It's very interesting. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 23, he, it, it is ref, uh, the, the statement here is that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Sorry, that's chapter 2, verse 23. Now that statement's puzzled many people because there's no statement in the prophets that say the Messiah shall be called a Nazarene. But many scholars think Matthew's doing a play on words here because the Hebrew word for branch, netzer. I'm sure I didn't pronounce that quite right. But if you say it properly, it sounds a lot like the beginning of Nazareth. And so many people think that Matthew is pointing to the fact here that his taking up a residence in Nazareth is appropriate for one who was the netzer, the branch, the branch from David's stump. That branch was Jesus And at his baptism, what happened at his baptism? Matthew 3.16, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Just like Isaiah 1.2 foresaw, the Spirit resting on him. See, Matthew points back to Isaiah so many times. 
time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry, he proved himself to be this one with wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. He proved himself to be one, even as his enemies recognized that he didn't judge by appearances. He didn't care what people thought, but he judged by what was true and what was accurate. He wouldn't be manipulated. He stood up for the vulnerable. Time and time again, Jesus used words and performed actions to show that in him, the long exile from sin was finally coming to an end. Even in his miracles, the miracles point to passages in Isaiah that point to the end of exile because God had finally come to be with his people because Jesus was God with us. God did not come to live in the temple. God came in a person. And after dying to pay for his people's sins and rising to stomp on death itself and then sending out his disciples to gather in his people from all nations, Jesus has promised to return and to deal with the wicked and to make all things new. And Romans 11 promises that before he returns, the remainder of Israel is going to turn back to Jesus by faith and be grafted back into this one people of God and 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says that Jesus will kill the lawless with the breath of his mouth, the lawless one, with the breath of his mouth at his coming, a direct echo of Isaiah 11.4. And Revelation 21 tells us how God in Christ will make all things new, and Isaiah's vision of peace and safety will finally come to pass, as we read this morning Death shall be no more, neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the ultimate triumph of grace. The history of God's people rewritten by grace to include not only their redemption and their personal forgiveness from sin, praise God for that, but also a completely new creation made new, restored to Eden and even better than Eden. Have you ever thought about what it's going to be like to actually be there? Have you dreamed? Have you imagined? Have you wondered what it's going to be like to stand up for the first time in a resurrected body. To walk around day after day not feeling death and decay tugging at you. To not know what it's like to be tempted anymore. To live in a world the way that it was meant to be. The best moments in this life, just little tastes. To live in perfect fellowship, not just with every other person, but with God himself. What will sunsets look like in the new earth? What kind of home will you live in? How will you decorate it? What will you name your wolf? And I'm not trying to be funny or make things light. What I'm trying to help us get a little taste of here is that this is real. This is real. We make plans for what we're going to do on vacation and we make plans for what we're going to do when we retire. Do you think about your real life and what it's going to be like to finally be there? What it's going to be like 
to see Christ, to hear his voice, what it's going to be like to finally live for the first time. This is real. What Isaiah saw here is real. And we know it's real because the righteous branch did shoot up from Jesse's stump. He started growing 2,000 years ago. He did live and die and rise again. And for the time in between, he has been gathering in the people to himself from every nation. And this might feel fantastical to you. I know when, I, when we get to these moments, it's like, oh yeah, go to heaven and we die and live with Jesus. And that's, that's what I'm trying to, trying to shatter through here right now is we've been told that such things aren't true. We've been told that, you know, we're modern people and we've got an explanation for everything through science and we know so much better than these primitive people from prior generations who believed in things like God and angels and prophecies. But if we know everything... In, in today's modern world, if we know everything, if we're so smart, if we've got it all figured out, why are we so sad and lonely? Why are elementary school children committing suicide at such a crazy rate? Why is our world so obviously aching for something so much bigger and truer than what we've been told? If things are getting better all the time, why have we had so much war? Why do we have Twitter the way that it is? What if us modern people got it all wrong? What if science can't explain everything? What if the stories are true? What if Andrew Peterson was right when he's saying, I can see, and can you feel this? I can see the world is charged. It's glimmering with promises, written in a script of stars and dripping from the prophet's lips. I can see it in the seas of wheat. I can feel it in the horse's run. It's howling in the snowy peaks, and it's blazing in the midnight sun. Just behind a veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wings, a swirling storm of cherubim making ready for the reckoning. Do you hear what he's getting at there? Is that our world is just dripping with the these realities, if we have the eyes to see them, and what if the next big event on God's calendar is not the next federal election, but the return of his son, Jesus Christ, to make all things new? What if we're on a countdown, and every day that the saints cry out, how long, O Lord, is one day closer to a day on a calendar? In God's mind, he knows it's got a month and a day and a year attached to it. A day when he says, enough, and he sends Jesus to come back and make all things new. What if it's true and that's actually coming? And I'm praying this morning that God stirs up your heart through the prophecies of Isaiah here to embrace that this is real. This is true. It's really coming. It's really going to happen. If Jesus is your savior, the best things you've experienced in this life are just a down payment on what Jesus is going to bring when he comes. It's really going to happen. Everything 
that we read here is true. This is our hope, people. Our hope as the people of God is not in politics. Our hope is not in getting our candidate into office. Our hope is not in social programs. Our hope is in Jesus coming back to make all things new. And our mission is to make disciples until he comes. And as I was preparing this message this week with you on my mind, and that's why I wanted to preach here today so I could look at you in these moments and just say this. I can't wait in that day, that day that is coming, I can't wait to to come find you, you who have, we've gone through so much together here in these, in these years down below and Lord willing have so much more to go through and we fought for the truth together and we've labored for the gospel together and we've suffered and prayed together and I can't wait to come find you and lock eyes and say, we made it, look, we're here, we actually made it, the stories were true, we're here together, won't that be so good and won't it be so worth it, won't all the sacrifices and the pain be worth it when we actually make it. It's going to happen. And Isaiah chapter 12 tells us what kind of words are going to come out of our mouth. And I'm just going to read these six verses for us. This is the kind of thing that we're going to say to each other in that day. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Isn't that what we see at the cross? The anger of God turned aside from his people. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Listen to this. Promise. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Ah, there's so much salvation. Throw another bucket down. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And in that day, you and I will get all the joy, and God will get all the glory, and life will begin finally. If you know Christ, that's your future. And my encouragement to you this morning is hang on to that hope, folks. Don't let this world cheat you out of that hope. Don't cash it in for whatever cheap trinkets or cheap pleasures this world's trying to sell to you. Hang on to that hope. By that hope, find the strength like Moses did, like all the people in Hebrews 11. Find the strength to trust and to obey living like a citizen of that kingdom today. By that hope, let our life as a church together be shaped. We're an embassy of the new creation. When people come in and spend time among us, they should catch a whiff of what it will be like in that day. And if you don't know Jesus, let that hope today draw you to say, I want that. And Jesus said, let he who thirsts come and drink the water of life without price. It's for you this morning if you will repent and believe the gospel. One day this is all going to be worth it. And may God help us to believe that today. We are going to, I'm going to pray for us and then the team is going to come right up and we're going to sing a song that celebrates all that God has promised to do. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the promise of all things new. The promise of a Savior who has come 
and is doing his work today through his church and will come and will make this world the way that it should have been. Oh, Lord, deliver us from the skepticism and the pride that thinks that we know so much better today. Lord, give us a heart like Isaiah had to receive these promises and to say, I, I, I believe. I'm going to stake my life on it. I'm going to spend my life on it. Lord, give us a taste of how good it will be to receive these promises. And may that taste, may that faith fuel our trust and our lives of obedience today. Following you, making disciples as disciples, waiting for the day when you split the skies. Lord Jesus, we so long for you to come and make all things new. Until that day, keep our faith alive. Help us to each other to fight to keep our faith alive. May this be a community, O oh God, that reflects the dawn of the new creation. Amen.